Welcome to Resolutions, the podcast of the American Bar Association section on dispute resolution. I'm Michael Russell. I'm a mediator in Nashville. Our topic today is mediation statements. We're pleased to have two guests with us today, uh, Professor uh, Donna Erez Navit and uh, Brian Farkas. Uh, Donna and Brian, uh, welcome. We're glad to have both of you. Thanks for having us. Well, it's our pleasure. It's our pleasure. Before we dive into the topic, I'd love for you to introduce yourselves to our listeners. Tell them a little bit about yourselves, what you're doing, your background, and how you came to be interested in dispute resolution. I suppose we'll allow the ladies to go first. So, Donna, tell us about yourself. I know you're a professor now at Cordozo Law School. Tell us about your background and how you came to this field. Sure, yeah. Um, So currently I'm a visiting assistant clinical professor at Cardozo. Um, I'm the assistant director of our Cuban program for conflict resolution, so our big ADR program, Um, one of the best cut programs like that in law schools around the country. I'm also the director of our mediation clinic. Um, And the way that I got there was – I studied social work um, after college. I did a degree in social work in Israel, and I felt a little bit, uh, I don't know, uh, like something was missing. Um, and then I decided to go to law school, and through my first year, again, I felt that there was something a little bit missing in the black letter of the law and didn't take in people's emotions and dynamics and families. Um, and in the second year, um, I was accepted to the Cardozo Law School Clinic, and that's where I found my home. I was really inspired by being at the mediation table, working with clients directly, helping them with their issues, dealing with conflict. Um, and I got a job in the New York City Family Court, working as a uh, as a mediator in transaction mediation cases. I did that for a few years, um, and then was luckily enough to start working as a professor teaching mediation to students. I started at UW Law School in Madison, Wisconsin, and now I'm at Cardozo Law School. So um, part of me loves mediating um, and also loves teaching mediation to law students. So those are two of my passions. Um, and so Brian and I uh, decided to work on this project together. I'll let Brian introduce himself, and then we'll talk more about the the project that we're talking about today. That's fantastic. Thanks, Donna. Uh, Brian, how about yourself? Tell, tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and how you got into this field. Sure. So it, it's always intimidating to introduce yourself after Donna. Um, I actually know Donna from Cardozo Law School. Um, I Like her, I went to Cardozo and really fell in love with um, dispute resolution and mediation there. Uh, I was a, an attorney at a law firm called Get Fitzpatrick for about six years where I I handled um, business litigation, everything from employment law to intellectual property law to construction and real estate disputes, and sort of got a wide-angle lens on a lot of different types of business conflict. And at the same time, I was teaching mediation and arbitration at uh, Brooklyn Law School, and in the last few years, I've also been teaching at Cardozo Law School, and I teach at Cardozo a, a seminar course on arbitration law, um, but the truth is my heart is still, uh, like Donna, is, is with mediation. Um, I, in my second year at Cardozo, I took the mediation clinic there, 
and the mediation clinic is just a phenomenal opportunity. Um, it allows students to be placed in community centers and uh, small claims courts around New York City. And I um, had this amazing experience of being able, as a second-year law student, to really directly help um, folks resolve their their legal and personal and, and business conflicts with one another, and that was really transformative for me. So I I love um, love mediation and I love teaching, and I've tried to uh, keep one foot in that world. Um, now I'm my full-time job is that I'm clerking for a federal judge in the uh, Southern District of New York. And that's also an interesting um, position to be in, seeing lots of different types of disputes uh, that come before the court and seeing how the, the court can help to resolve those disputes through either judicial intervention or, or through in-house mediation programs that are part of the court system. Fantastic. Fantastic. Mm-hmm. Um, well, let's jump into the topic uh, that you all presented at the uh, spring conference of the ABA uh, section on dispute resolution. Uh, you were nice enough to come to Minneapolis and talk with us. Uh, on the topic of mediation statements, um, the likelihood is that most of our listeners are very um, uh, accomplished uh, dispute resolution professionals, and so when we say uh, mediation statement, they know exactly what we're talking about. But just out of abundance of caution, uh, when you all say mediation statement, why don't you tell us what you're talking about? Brian or Donna, whoever wants to take the floor. Sure, I'll I'll take a stab at it. Um, Well, it's interesting, Michael, because even though most uh, litigators and mediators may think that they know what they mean when they talk about a mediation statement, we've actually, Donna and I, through our research, have found that, in fact, there's a lot of differences of opinion about what actually goes into a mediation statement. And many attorneys and many mediators will actually use that phrase to mean a bunch of different things. And that's part of the purpose of our paper and of our research and of our presentation at the ABA is to sort of correct some of the many different approaches to what a mediation statement actually is um, and try to come up with a sort of normative definition of what a mediation statement should be. So some of the definitions that we've found out there, um, not surprisingly, have varied, partly because there's not really a whole lot of training on what a mediation statement should include. For example, even though numerous law schools have mediation courses and uh, some even have mediation clinics like Cardozo Law School, most of those types of classes don't actually include training in how to draft a mediation statement, which is more common in sort of commercial litigation firms where you have um firms representing businesses or individuals where there's significant dollar amounts on the line. Um, And even in CLE programs, we've found that not many CLEs train the attendees, usually litigators, on what the best practices are surrounding how to write a mediation statement. So just as, as some examples, we've seen some lawyers viewing mediation statements as really an opportunity to make their case to the mediator as if they're arguing to a judge. They try to belittle their opponent. They try to, um, you know, minimize the the um, impact of any arguments that their, their opponent might have, and they try to really present their case. Um, others view mediation statements as completely an opportunity to propose very specific settlements 
where they'll actually write to the mediator ahead of time and they'll say, here are the terms that we believe our client would accept. And we want you, Mr. Mediator, to go out there and and sell this solution to the other side. So that's another model. And then we've seen some attorneys who view them completely as kind of informational documents that don't really take a position at all, but really just present kind of the facts of a really complicated case or maybe outline all the legalese, the, the case law and the statutes that um, that inform the mediator's interpretation of the case before he or she actually comes to the table and, and helps the parties work it out during the session. And then another distinction that, we've, that Donna and I have, have observed is that some mediators and some attorneys think that mediation statements are confidential, that they're ex parte, shared between each party and the mediator, and the other side doesn't get to see it. And others seem to believe that mediation statements should be shared and are shared among the parties. So long story short, even though it's funny, Michael, as you said, it's people kind of know what we mean when we talk about a mediation statement. Everyone has their own definition for exactly what it is. Well, that that's a good segue to our next question. Uh, given the pantheon of opinions on what a mediation statement looks like and who the audience is and what should be in it and what should be in it, why don't you talk about, in, in your view, uh, what makes a mediation statement effective? Sure. Why don't I get that one? So um, we did uh, we did some research to figure out um, what best practices were for pre-mediation statements. Um, we ended up uh, drafting a survey monkey and reached out to several organizations and sent out the survey monkey to um, a couple listservs. So there's the Don J DR Legal Educators listserv for those who don't know that that's a really good one to get on um, through Maria Volpe's. We call it sometimes Maria Volpe's listserv, the John Jay listserv. Um, we also did um, the uh, – we also sent it out to mediators from the SDNY mediation panel and also selected some mediators that we knew the ABA DR section. Um, and we were lucky enough to have 180 survey participants. Um, we had 180 people um, respond to the survey. Um, 43% of them stated that their practice was mediating more than 70% of the time, and the rest were people who split their time between an attorney and a mediator. So what was really interesting is that we really got to see from the mediator's perspective, what is it, what is it that they really want to see in mediation statements? Um, for those, um, the practice areas that were included were commercial, that was a majority, labor and employment, and there were some consumer IP and family mediators. But like I said, it was a majority of commercial mediators. So what are some interesting points that came out of the survey? Um, was that uh, 66% of people, again, more than a majority, much more than 50%, um, always required that we have pre-mediation statements. Um, and 14% usually require them. So meaning that 80% of mediators require them or usually require mediation statements. Um, another thing that was really really interesting was um, they wanted those pre-mediation statements to be formatted like a letter. Um, they didn't want it to be a legal brief. Something that Brian mentioned before is that should they be very formalistic? Should they be like your arguments and support? And most of our respondents actually said that they didn't. They wanted it to be less formal, more like a letter. 
Um, another really interesting thing that Brian and I had debated this when we were sending out the survey is how long people, mediators would want their their uh, mediation statements to be. Um, and we we found that most wanted it about between five and ten pages. They didn't want it to be longer than that. And only 4% wanted it to go 15 pages. So a really big message was it should be short, it should be informal, um, it should not be um, a legal brief. Um, in regards to exhibits, um, only half the mediators wanted it uh, to have exhibits um, that were uh, that were exhibits from the legal proceedings. A lot of them just wanted to see what the um, attorneys thought were relevant exhibits. Um, I'll get into that a little bit later, but um, I'm trying to think what other things. Um, whether or not they wanted them to be talking about settlement within the mediation statement. And it seemed like actually a lot, almost 80% wanted some sort of statement about settlement um, and what the um, attorneys would want for a settlement for their clients. Some wanted to range, someone wanted to actually hear what the settlement, a specific statement about settlement. Um, but that we thought was really interesting. Um, like I said, um, 90, over 90% wanted it to be significantly or slightly less formal than a brief, than a legal brief. Um, but they did want to see some legal arguments. Those still remained important. Um, they wanted to see some legal citations. Um, but really, uh, some wanted all relevant legal authority that can affect the outcome of the dispute. So although they didn't want people to ignore the legal arguments, um, they wanted it to have um, some some important elements there. Um, so we thought that that was really interesting. Like I said, they wanted it to be short. They wanted it to be informal. They wanted some talk about specific settlement statements. They wanted um, some legal arguments, but that shouldn't be the whole thing. Um, so those are some of the broad strokes of that research that we got out of our uh, survey monkey. In, in terms of, uh, I, I think a lot of when I mediate for folks uh, uh, and I get mediation statements, I can tell sometimes the lawyers are struggling about whether facts are more important and whether the, the law is more important. As someone who um, who, mo who usually mediates labor and employment disputes, uh, I feel like I've got my arms around the law. And so if there's, a, if there's a nuance in the law or a particularly odd question of the law, obviously I want that set forth for me, but but my view is that if you've got an experienced mediator with subject matter expertise, um, a really detailed uh, statement of facts is much more important than a thorough analysis or a thorough legal analysis. Am I unique in that? What has your research found? Did most, most mediators agree with me, disagree with me? Do you have a sense of that? Yeah, I think that most mediators would agree with you from the, from the research that um, that we conducted and the individuals that we spoke to. I think the key with with citing law in your pre-mediation statement is that you really should only talk about the law if it's outcome determinative, and that's what we keep kept seeing in um, in the interviews with mediators um, that we conducted for this paper. If the law is going to determine the outcome if the case goes to court and it's really, really certain, for example, a statute of limitations issue would be a, a really clear example, or if there's a statute right on point that really exactly squarely addresses the, the determination of the lawsuit, then that's, of course, something that should be referenced in a pre-mediation statement. 
But what I think annoys mediators, frankly, and, and doesn't really help is an explanation of the summary judgment standard, for example, or an explanation of just general premises of, you mentioned, labor and employment law. If, if you're talking about, like, the general law around the Fair Labor, Fair labor Standards Act, that's probably not going to be so helpful for the average mediator in terms of actually settling the case. But I mediate cases a lot of times. I ask lawyers in my engagement letter to uh, uh, to send me a mediation statement, and I ask for their strengths, and I also ask for their weaknesses. Now, I, uh, if I'm honest with you, uh, when I get a, a mediation statement and uh, someone, you know, occasionally will say, we don't have a weakness in the world, or, uh, or they'll completely ignore uh, my request, and, uh, and, and they won't say anything about what their perceived weaknesses are. Um, what are your thoughts on whether uh, litigants and advocates should acknowledge points of weakness in their mediation statements? Um, I can address that a little bit. I mean, one of the things that we've been talking a lot about, um, and it might be some further research that we're talking about, is whether or not everything should be included in the actual mediation statement, in that pre-mediation statement, or if there's some stuff that should be talked about over the phone with the mediator before you head in. So um, I think when when we talk about pre-mediation statements, we also talk about whether or not the clients are reading the pre-mediation statements and whether or not they're required to do that. I think some attorneys might be a little bit uncomfortable with talking too strongly about their weaknesses if they know that their clients are going to read it and maybe the other side's clients are going to read it. Um, so we talk a little bit about that in, in the paper that we've written on this subject. Um, but uh, one of the ideas was possibly that, you know, when you're really talking about the weaknesses and another thing might be the personality of your client and maybe what your client's willing to accept or not, that maybe some of those conversations shouldn't be in those pre-mediation statements, but should be in pre-mediation uh, phone calls that you have with the mediator. We think that those could really supplement um, those uh, the pre-mediation statements and kind of give the mediator some in-depth understanding about what the dynamics might be in the room what expectations people have coming in, and like you're saying, those those real weaknesses in their case um, that they might not feel comfortable sharing, especially if the other side's client might, might be reading the statement. Brian, do you have any thoughts about it in addition to that? Yeah, no, I think you, you hit the nail on the head, which is, well, well, Michael, it's interesting. Lawyers never want to acknowledge that they that they potentially have weaknesses, especially, as Donna said, if, if their own client is going to read that, that statement. And I think that um, the suggestion of using a phone call in addition to a shared pre-mediation statement kind of allows the lawyer to have a little bit of flexibility to acknowledge weakness, and I think by acknowledging weakness over the phone, it, it actually bolsters the lawyer's credibility. Uh, no, no mediator is going to believe a, a lawyer who says that they have the perfect case because no one ever has the perfect case, really. And by by subtly acknowledging your weakness or saying that you know there might be some cases that go in a different direction or that you're not entirely sure that a judge or a jury would would buy your story. I think it, it can help you and your client to um, appear more credible in the eyes of the mediator. Brian, do you have any sense of how how often lawyers do have pre-mediation calls with uh, mediators? I get the sense that some mediate, mediators require it. Uh, some mediators don't require it but encourage it. Uh, for some mediators, perhaps it's an anomaly. Do you, do you have a sense of how often 
lawyers have pre-mediation uh, calls with the mediator in addition, perhaps, to mediation statements? It's we don't, but that. that's, that's um, not absolutely. We don't know yet, but we're going to do some research on that. Trying to do some more research on pre-mediation proposals. Sorry, Brian, you go ahead. <laughs> no, that's that's exactly right. We we need to to really get some some data on that issue. Um, my sense, anecdotally, just from being on the litigation side, is that it really is all over the map. Um, some mediators will do a telephone call instead of written statements. And that has some advantages. They'll do a, either an ex parte conversation with each party or they'll do a, a, a group telephone conference. And the, the principal advantage of that, honestly, is, is it saves money and it saves time. So if the attorneys are worried or if the client is worried that the dollar value of the case is maybe not worth writing a lengthy, well-researched, well-written statement, you might be able to shave a few thousand dollars off of the legal bill by, by simply skipping this step of the process altogether. But in a dispute that, that really merits some deeper thinking and some deeper articulation of the issues prior to the mediation, um, we think it, it is actually helpful to do those statements and also do an ex parte phone call. To what extent, uh, based on your findings, are mediation statements uh, exchanged or exchanged with their opposing counsel, and to what extent are they provided ex parte to the mediator? Donna? Brian, I think I'm actually going to let you handle that one. Yeah, so I think it's, again, like the um, question of the phone calls versus the, the written statements, this one is also all over the map. Uh, different mediators and different litigators have different practices on ex parte statements versus shared statements. And each one comes with its own strengths and weaknesses, pros and cons. Um, the primary advantage of having an ex parte statement, of course, is that it allows you to, to speak more candidly to the mediator, to really share your weaknesses, share your, your chief concerns, and also really put forward some bottom lines in a way that is maybe more honest than you or your client would be willing to do if, if the other lawyer were reading the statement. Um, on the downside, however, when you don't share your statement with the other side, there's always that fear that it is actually driving a wedge between the two sides because you, you never know. You're always thinking, well, what did they put in their statement? What are they saying about me behind my back? Um, and I think one of the goals of mediation is to actually build trust, build credibility, and ultimately have everyone walk away shaking hands, tr hopefully trusting each other and um, developing empathy among the parties and among the lawyers. So having those non-shared statements, that, that comes with a, a drawback. So if you share the statements, there's a sense that you're sort of all in it together and all the information is out there on the table. Everyone is putting their cards down and there's a little bit more honesty back and forth. Now, what Donna and I think about this is, uh, as we discussed in our article, we tend to think that it's helpful to have a shared mediation statement. Mm -hmm. uh, and the reason we think that is, is really gets back to this trust issue. Mediation is all about developing that trust, and if there's a fear that um, there's information that's being hidden, then that can really undermine the sort of ultimate 
um, philosophy and purpose behind mediation. So we're really advocates of the shared mediation statement with the caveat that Donna mentioned before that we do think it can be supplemented with an ex parte um, telephone call. The other thing that I remember, I was remembering we had spoken to one of our colleagues who actually does more um, advocacy and mediation, um, but I remember him specifically saying that when he writes these pre-mediation statements, I alluded to this before, he writes them with the client on the other side in mind because he hopes that um, that the client will read the strengths of his case, the other side's client, so that when they go into mediation, they might be more open to settlement options because they've read the strengths of the other side's case and that it's an opportunity for the lawyer on the other side to speak to their client about why it might be smart to settle the case. We even had um, one um, attorney recommend printing out, bringing with you to the mediation enough copies so that you can give the other side and the other side's client, like both um, have enough copies for everyone so that people could read those pre-mediation statements together. So like Brian said, we're definitely supportive of it. Um, and when we were teaching, this, this opened up my eyes to the idea of exposing the clients, not just the attorneys and not just the mediator, to what's going on in the case, what the strengths are. So I thought that was really interesting. That is interesting. Well, Brian and Donna, uh, we are almost out of time. We appreciate you all uh, speaking to our group at the spring conference in Minneapolis. Um, perhaps for those listeners who were not able to join us at the, uh, the section on dispute resolutions spring conference and those who were not able to hear your presentation, um, uh, what, what takeaways, uh, do you hope that the attendees at the spring conference were able to, uh, were, to, were able to go back to their practices with, uh, perhaps that you'd like to share with those listeners who weren't able to attend? Sure. So I think one one takeaway that we really want, um, that we hope that our attendees um, had from our presentation, is that mediation is not litigation. And there's a, a fear that a lot of scholars and um, and practicing mediators have put forward that mediation is becoming too much like litigation. Um, uh, Tom Stepanowicz has written about this, and Jackie Nolan Haley has written about this. Leela Love has written about this, this fear that that mediation is becoming too litigious. And one of the ways that it can become too litigious is where mediation statements really start to look like summary judgment motions. And they're almost indistinguishable from essentially briefs asking the court for a particular kind of ultimate relief. And I think that what Donna and I hope that um, that folks take away from our presentation and our article is that mediation statements are actually not that, and they shouldn't be that. They should be an opportunity to facilitate settlement and facilitate compromise um, by being by having a different tone and by having a different objective and a different audience than a summary judgment motion would have. Donna, do you want to add to that? Yeah, just we were hoping we're you know. The whole point of the research is to make sure that people understand, like, what's the purpose of this? Like, and it's to be, it's to be brief. That's really interesting that came out. Focusing, like we said, on settlement, thinking about the important legal arguments, um, 
And if you have something good, then it can really be helpful to the process. Like it can move things along. If you really spend some time to think about it as opposed to cut and pasting from your legal briefs, if you think about it as a separate document and you spend some time focusing on it, what are the scopes of your case, depending on how you feel the weaknesses, um, it can have to really move the settlement process forward. Um, and so we thought um, just to give, you know, overall, like, what the guidelines are, what's the best practices with this. And we were hoping that people could come away knowing and feeling more confident when they were writing these pre-mediation statements um, what they should look like. Um, so hopefully we did that. Well, that's my hope, too. And we uh, we certainly appreciate your research. We appreciate your attendance at the uh, and your presentation at our spring conference. And uh, and we appreciate you joining us here today on our podcast. So good luck as your research continues, and uh, keep up the good work. It's been our pleasure to have you with us. Thanks. Michael. Thank you for having us. Yeah. You bet. Uh, this is Michael Russell, uh, and thank you to our listeners for joining us. We hope you'll join us next time, uh, and uh, tune in for the next episode of Resolutions, uh, the podcast of the American Bar Association section on dispute resolution. Until then, I'm Michael Russell.